You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. So our podcast is called Right and Wrong. Are these your notes? These, <laughs> these are your notes about what we're going to say? Uh, anything. Nailed it. It's a short answer. <laughs> so how many novels did you not finish? Oh my prior? God, so many. <laughs> it was perfect. What are you talking about? This is nonsense. Ooh, a spicy question. I love it. <laughs> this is it, guys. The big secret to getting published is you have to write a good book. Yeah. <laughs> you had it here first. We're going <laughs> to Hello and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. Today I'm joined by author of Sunday Times bestseller, The Book Eaters. It's Sunny Dean. Hi, Sunny. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining me. Let's get right into it with the with the the debut novel, The Book Eaters, which came out last year and has since become Sunday Times bestseller, nominated for Goodreads best fantasy, and then already I mean, even before that, there was a lot of buzz for it because am I right in thinking it went to a four-way auction? Um, I think that's what it says on Bookseller and we <laughs> we never corrected them. Because oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I think, I don't know, I don't know exactly how they got that impression, but we're, uh, I mentioned to my agent, we're just like, we'll, we'll leave it like it, it went to a small auction between okay. Harper and, and I think Titan and um but I wasn't going to correct the bookseller and, and make it sound less impressive. So we just left it. it yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, yeah, just roll with it. Sounds great. I mean, it's still good just to be up between between two publishers though. Yeah. It, it means you have, someone will take you on. Yes. And that, that's always the risk when you hold on to, to UK rights and things. If no one buys them, you're left sitting with them. Yeah. 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 But I mean, what an amazing response to your to your debut sort of novel. How, how are you? How are you feeling about it? Sort of a year later. Um, I guess the goalposts always move. Yeah, you, you get you're happy for about five minutes, and then the next problem shows up, and the next problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's not fair. Actually, I was happier for longer than five minutes, but <laughs> five but, months. Let's yeah, say. <laughs> well, I think because they they came for the offer in in August 2020 from Tor. And it's right. now January 2023. So it, enough time has passed that it does settle down. Yes. Yeah. It feels like a long time ago um, yeah. back then. But you, but it's good to celebrate the, celebrate each win as they come, even if it is, you know, as you say, the goalposts will move and there will be a new challenge ahead of you. And had you written much before Book Eaters? Um, I'd written some short stories, but alongside that, I, I think I'd written two novels before then. Okay. Um, the first one, which I'd rewritten over and over and over and just never found an agent, never got anywhere. It wasn't a very good book. 
the second one, I did get an agent and all the publishers said no. And um, that was about 18 months of slow rejections coming in. Oof. Um, so that, that's the part where you can go on submission and your book can die. And the third book was the one that I didn't feel good about, but it sold very quickly. So I guess that's the one. Yeah. I always experienced that when I was at school doing exams and I always found that the ones that I wasn't confident about coming out were the ones that actually I ended up doing much better in. Yeah. I think, uh, the longer you write, the, the less you have a perspective on your own work. I think Jeff Vandermeer has <laughs> talked about this, where he's he said he's at the stage where he just has no idea anymore whether it's good or it's bad or anything. So he just sends it to his agent and he hopes for the best. <laughs> um, so and funny. I, I definitely relate to that. And the, the irony of that being that uh, when authors get big enough, they actually sort of get less and less edited. And uh, so, some yeah. authors just don't get edited once they're famous enough. Yeah, the, the sprinkling of fairy dust. Um, <laughs> exactly. And you signed a three-book deal, um, yes. which I found Amazon very helpfully listed online as Untitled Book 2 and Untitled Book 3 <laughs> <laughs> out in 2023 and 2024, respectively. Are they are these going to be um, sequels? Are you interested in doing sequels uh, or, or are you more into a kind of standalone novels? So I think when you go into trade publishing, um, the thing that you really have to be flexible on is whether or not <laughs> how many books you get to write, uh-huh. uh, because that's that titles and covers are probably the, the three things that they have the most say in. Um, I did assume Book Eaters would be a series because it's a fantasy novel and that's normal for our genre. But when yeah. Tor picked it up, they said, we don't envision it as a series. We envision it as a standalone. Interesting. And um, there's a big industry shift towards standalones at the moment uh, for a whole host of reasons. I can go into it if you find it interesting or I'll leave it out. I don't mind either way. No, I'd, but, I'd like to hear yeah, um, um, kind of your thoughts on it. Okay. Basically, there's a, there's a problem with series where readership collapses, not collapses, but it, it drops with every book. Yeah. So if, if your follow through is what they call it, your follow through readership for book two in a trilogy is 50%, you are doing amazing. I see. Um, and then, so, you know, it's kind of having for every book almost. And that means you're committing to buying books where you know that there'll be dwindling sales, but the production costs don't go down. Uh, and that's a lot, that's hard for on the publishers, that's hard on the authors. And if your first book doesn't do well, you're both chained to the series, which is just dragging you down like an anchor. Um, and I think publishers are aware of that. They're moving more towards duologies and standalones because if your first book bombs, they just launch you again. They just launch you again. They keep trying. Um, And also mainstream readers, if they want to attract the mainstream market, they tend to read standalones. I guess you look at someone like Neil Gaiman um, Mm -hmm. or Claire North, they release a lot of standalones in, in that bracket. So it, it's a reflect of the changing market. The indies are kind of dominating series. And um, I think publishers are, are leaning more towards standalones. That is interesting. Okay. So for you, it's going to be standalones that your, your, your follow-up books. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad of that because I have, publishers are not always great at supporting series. They don't tend to do a lot of promo for book two and three. They just, their, their entire sales strategy is to sell book one. Yeah. So yeah. I'm happy to be writing standalones and not stuck in that trap. Um, but maybe one day we'll do a sequel. It would be a standalone sequel. Uh, So like (laughs) making it into a duology. 
Um, making it to like, but maybe write a sequel which ties up some of the events, but it's standalone to read if you oh, want to. Gotcha. Kind of, yeah. Okay. That makes sense in a sort of complicated yet simple way. <laughs> As um, uh, the Book Eaters came out, um, it hit a lot of lists and it was, uh, it received quite a bit of critical acclaim in, in the UK. What was, I mean, as a debut novel, that must be very, very exciting. What was it, what was it like? And and like, did you have to do anything to, um, propel that onto those lists? Uh, no. And I think that's something that I struggled with that. I don't think the book is bad. I don't think I did it badly, but I was also very aware um, after signing that how much of, of publishing can be kind of predetermined, um, that almost from the moment your book is bought, the advance is offered, that sets the course for the kind of marketing and support the book gets. So I didn't really do anything. I don't have much of a platform. I don't have much reach. I don't have a lot of childcare to travel. I think I've done um, one convention and a couple of small events and the rest of it has been publisher marketing. Harper is very, very good on the, on their marketing team when they want to throw effort behind something they do. So all of that really came from kind of Tor and Harper doing things in the background. When you say that once the sort of, once it's been signed and the advance has been agreed, everything's kind of set in motion. What do you mean by that? As in like, do you think from that, from that, from that kind of signing that moment, you can, you can sort of guess how much of a backing this is going to get and where you're going to be able to see it in the sort of media and advertising? Yeah. So you, you get marketing plans early on, but you also have a sense that basically publishers have lead titles that they put a lot of work and money into. And then they have mid list, which are almost the titles that they publish, but they don't support nearly as much. Um, and there's a very, very big gap between the support that those books receive. Um, most of my friends are mid list. So I'm kind of acutely aware of that. And I think it's good for me to keep talking to them and to always remind myself that the worst thing you can do is believe you're on hype and start believing that you're some kind of genius Yeah. Uh, when effectively you've been picked for success by a, a variety of reasons. So when I say that the course is set, I mean, the, the book came out in September in the UK, uh-huh. 2022, but I knew in January, 2022 that it was going to hit list. Oh, how did you know? Um, because it sold to a crate and it had a special edition with Waterstones and they were doing various other things. And that just meant that those things together meant we would get the numbers on launch day to do it. And so I mean, that's what I mean by it's so much is decided in advance that, you know, nine or 10 months before launch, how the, how the book is going to go roughly. And you don't know after that, but, and they're always variables, you know, publishers do sometimes have books, they put a ton of money into it and it falls face down. Uh, I think whoever put money into that Liz trusts, PM book is probably gnashing their teeth right now, but it, it happens, isn't it? So, but you do have the odds stacked in your favor and they can do that for you. Um, and I you're see. more likely to, you're more likely to follow that trajectory than not. What do you think it was about the book eaters that the, that Harper kind of said, okay, well, let's, let's really give this thing um, a lot of backing. Uh, I guess hype builds hype. So Tor was very excited by it, but I think editor is very personal. I, I know that my editor, Vicky, she she basically looks through manuscripts and she finds one she's excited about. She just throws everything into it, uh, which is, it works for her to do that. Um, 
I guess the, probably the biggest thing was the, the crate sales. That's a huge driver of books in um, science fiction and fantasy in the UK right now. A big determiner of the market. And and and, and what, what do you mean by what, what do you mean by crate sales? Um, have you heard of a Luma crate and Fairy Loon and places like that? Oh yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Yes. So they're basically companies that produce special editions for a subscription service. People subscribe, they get a box every month that has a book and it has some cool items. And the book is usually a special edition. It comes with extra artwork, own, its own co- a special cover and things like that. And they're signed by the author. Uh, and some of those subscription services are very big. Like if you sign with a subscription service, you might be guaranteed a 20 or 30,000 books right out the gate, wow. which is a lot. And it, you know, they're books that can't be returned because books sold to bookstores can be returned if nobody buys them. So that's kind of shaping the UK sci-fi and fantasy market. Is this a crate book? Will the crates pick it up? How many books will they give us? How many subscribers do they think will take it on or pass? And um, that was probably the moment where Harper started to be like, okay, this, I think they were a bit unsure about it. They were like, oh, this this premise is ridiculous because it does sound ridiculous. Will people (laughs) actually go for it? and Illumicrate threw their weight behind it and really liked it. So then it it definitely started to pick up more with Harper and, and kind of, you know, that got it to the Waterstone special edition. Sorry, it sounds so cynical, all this stuff. <laughs> but I always feel like I have to explain to people it, it wasn't anything that I did. Right. Um, I'm proud of the book and I'm glad I wrote it, but I also got really lucky. And that is a huge component in publishing. Uh, and it just set the tone for your how you launch. Yeah. Do you think, you know, with that, in mind waiting on a tax return hopefully it ends up in your hands fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30 percent in 2023 if you're in a bind this tax season lifelock can help our u.s-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues and all lifelock plans are backed by the million dollar protection package so we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft help protect your information this tax season with lifelock save up to 25 percent your first year at lifelock.com aware does it sort of add an extra level of pressure for your your next book yeah the, the pressure is there i think it's taken me over a year just to pin down the idea for the next book. And that was a lot of going back and forth with my editor with them saying, could you write something that's similar, but not too similar and different, but not too different. Um, but also more of the same, but still different. <laughs> yeah. And this is too genre and this is too mainstream and this is too magic and this is too sci-fi and just on and on. So just going back and forth with ideas. So that pressure is definitely there. But you've pinned it down now you're working on it. How, I know that a general trend with, and we kind of touched on this lightly earlier, a general trend with, with publishers and how they'll sort of market um, authors is that they will, they will do a lot of marketing for a debut mm-hmm. author because they're, they're essentially sort of creating your brand as yeah. the writer. And then th- they'll often do a little bit less marketing for a, a follow-up book because you, you now have an established sort of readership and, and fan base that will likely get that book anyway. Are you, do, do you know what kind of degree of marketing your follow-up will get uh, compared to the book eaters? I think my limited experience is that's very editor by editor based. Oh, okay. Um, I think I have, I feel that I have really good editors. We get on really well. They're really passionate. 
um, I think Lynn, my editor at Tours, she's called Lindsay Hall, and she's basically the editor that all my friends want as well because she does <laughs> just throw everything into her books. Yeah. Um, she has some books that are smaller. She has some books that are very big, like the Atlas Six is, and Legends and Lattes or um, some other, you know, some books that she's got on her kind of client list. Mm-hmm. But she treats everyone basically the same and puts a lot of weight behind it. So I don't worry about it too much, but also, I guess, um, the money's agreed, so they have to sort of pay up as long as I keep handing them in. Yeah, that's um, true. I don't know. It will be interesting to see how, how that follows through. It, is is Lindsay the the same editor that, that did the book eaters? Oh, yeah. Sorry. So she was my acquiring editor on the American side and and Vicky was my acquiring editor on the UK side and they worked together right. on the edit letters. Oh, okay. Interesting. Oh, okay. Because oh, of course you're Harper in the UK, but Tor yeah. in the US. Yeah, that's right. And, and speaking of the US, um, you were actually born in the US, yes. grew up in Hong Kong, but now live in yeah. the UK. And you are signed with Naomi Davis, your, is your literary agent over at yeah. Bookends Literary in the US. Did you always want to get an agent in the US? I think she lives in Canada, actually. But oh, her agency, okay. she works remotely from an agency oh, that's based wow. out of New Jersey. Gosh, you're, you're really spanning <laughs> the world, you two. <laughs> um, I, I queried both, but the book I was querying with that found me, Naomi, was set in Midwest America. So it felt more okay. like a book. UK agents will accept queries from wherever, but they, they kind of look at you askance if it's like, obviously for the American market, like, why are you sending this to me? Yeah. And there are a lot less of them. Um, and they tend to have a lot of celebrities on their their roster. Yes. Uh, so technically, you know, Victoria Cohen Mitchell's agent was open to queries, but realistically, he's not going to give me the time of day. So <laughs> there, there was a bigger choice in the States and I wasn't fussed about where they lived. I see. So does it I mean, does it in any way, because I've spoken to um, a few agents, a few international agents, um, some in the US, and and from what I've gathered, especially now that we've all kind of been trained in how to do video conferencing and stuff through lockdown and and COVID and all this, the the sort of um, drawbacks of having an agent internationally are very minimal. Yeah, I think actually during COVID, Naomi was doing completely fine because they were already used to not going to lunch in New York and stuff like that. They were already used to being the agent who works remotely. So yeah. nothing changed for them. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's always something that I, when I first sort of started getting into publishing thought, well, it would be, it would be very difficult and a strain on the relationship to have an agent who didn't, you know, live in the same country as you, but realistically it, it doesn't make too much difference. Uh, I mean, it would be nice, you know, just to drop by and have a coffee with your agent, but it, it would happen so rarely. And it's not like you really gain much more than that. Have you ever met Naomi in person? No, I hope to <laughs> at Glasgow Worldcon, but oh. we both have kids and don't travel easily right. with, with child childcare and stuff. So it's a bit awkward. Yeah. So just the video calls now? Yeah. Just video calls or emails or messenger, <laughs> which <laughs> tends to be faster. Fair enough. Fair enough. But to be honest, I think even if, um, when people do have agents who live locally, let's say, you know, you live in London, you have an agent in London, you probably don't even see them that much anyway. You're more likely to be messaging and, and video calling. So. Yeah. I think, I, th- I think some people do see theirs, but I don't know how often that, well, especially once you have a book that you're dealing with the publisher, you don't necessarily yeah, need yeah, to check yeah. in very often anymore. That's true. And I, I mean, also every 
agent, author, and editor, and all these relationships are all very unique and and mm. different, and no two are the same. So, um, who knows with these things? Let's get back onto on, onto the book eaters. What um, you know, you've said a lot about kind of your experience and how you were sort of a little bit confused that everything was happening when without that much of your input. Going into your next one, which uh, will be published uh, this year. 2024 probably because I've taken so long. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Someone should tell Amazon. Untitled book two, 2024. Yes. Um, <laughs> what, um, how are you going to approach that launch uh, and sort of everything that's going on with everything you learn from the book eaters? How are you going to kind of approach that differently? Um, I think I worry a lot less. I know that <laughs> <laughs> because so much is out of your hands, you might as well not worry about it. The only thing that's ever worked for me, career-wise, is just working on the books. I could never get to conferences, workshops. I didn't have the networking opportunities. Mm-hmm. I don't have the platform. Since I can't do those things or haven't got those things, I just don't worry about them. For the book eaters, I didn't even do a book launch, um, and I probably wouldn't. I would probably skip that again for the next one. Oh, okay, not even like an online thing. Oh yeah, Tor had some online events. Yeah. Uh, in the UK, I didn't do anything in person, which I'm glad about because Waterstone stock issues meant that if I'd had a book launch, it would have been without any books, and that would have just been <laughs> an exercise in humiliation. So. Yeah, a bit awkward. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you're just not going to worry as much. I mean, a great, a much healthier sort of uh, outlook on on the whole thing. I hope so. Uh, <laughs> I think mostly I look ahead towards the next contract because that's how yeah. you know things are going. Um, and I'll know more about that in February when I start seeing royalty statements, have a better sense of how I'm selling. You you get very little info in your own sales, which is weird. Oh, okay. You, you, you kind of have to wait for the publisher to update you. Is that right? Yeah. So some publishers have a sales portal. I know Orbit does, Hachette does. Macmillan doesn't. Uh, I'm not sure why other than they want you to just have less information. So my editor was was sending updates in the early weeks, but that becomes more infrequent now. Okay. And you just otherwise have to kind of gauge it by Goodreads or kind of looking at your Amazon rankings. And <laughs> it's shocking how much how little info you have sometimes, actually. Yes, and those Amazon rankings are are, are wild. The way that they change every day mm. is is uh, difficult to keep up with. And I, I'm sure a lot of authors have fallen into the trap of just every day checking the ranking to see how they've shifted, whether they've moved up or down one or two places. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you, there's Amazon Author Central that you can log into, but it's so wildly inaccurate that it's not really helpful for anything. <laughs> so so that's how you're going to approach it. What advice, now that you've kind of been through this, you've been on submission different at different stages, at different points, you, you kind of, you've got your, you finally got your first book published. What advice would you have for, would you give to writers looking to sort of give themselves the best possible chance of getting their books out into the world? Oh, I guess figure out what your strengths are and focus on them mm-hmm. and don't, don't waste energy on the things that you can't control. Uh, so yeah. people will say things like, um, you know, I guess something people, people said a lot to me is you need to get out to these conferences, you need to network. That was never possible. I wasted energy worrying about it. It didn't matter. Um, focus on what you can do, what you can control. If you can't write fast, then don't worry about being a fast writer, you know, <laughs> things like that. I don't know if that makes sense, but. No, that makes a lot of sense. F- figure out, you know, yeah. I guess it's figure out what's going to work for you because I'm sure going to conferences and networking is great for some people, but 
for someone like me, that's, that's like sort of, that would give me anxiety constantly mm. having to like network and try and, you know, push an, a sort of agenda onto different people who, yeah. who would hopefully at some point do something that might help for me. But some people really thrive in that kind of environment. So I think, I think that's great advice and great life advice as well. Just figure out what works for you, where your strengths are and lean into your strengths. Yeah. And I think if you can find an author whose career matches the kind of thing you're hoping to do, that could be helpful as well. Uh So instead of like, I wouldn't look at Brandon Sanders and say, right, that's going to be the career I hope to follow because I can't write a million books a year. (laughs) Right. So only only Brandon Sanderson can do that because he probably has like four arms that he keeps (laughs) hidden under his coat for extra typing. Yeah. (laughs) So I, I would, I don't know. I guess my dream would be more like Aaron Morganson or something, write two books every 20 years and they sell millions of copies. But I mean, that's the dream. Somewhere right? in between, somewhere in between those two. Um, a happy middle ground. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, that's that, that's two great pieces of advice there. <laughs> I think um, focus on your strengths and also sort of try and find people who who, who, who inspire you and, and see because I think if you if you want to look for a different styles of authors and writers, there's always going to be one that's sort of somewhat close. There's so many authors out there that there's going to be one successful author who is somewhat close to the style with which you kind of approach the craft. Yeah. Well, I think that brings us to what is always the final question uh, of each episode, which is, Sun Yi, if you were stranded on a desert island, but could take a single book with you, which book would you take? Uh, this answer always sounds pretentious because I've been asked it before, but uh, I would take uh, The History of Western Philosophy by Bertrand Russell because okay. I do Deep. enjoy it and it's massive yeah. and it's nonfiction, but I find it really funny and inspiring reading it. It's There's more information I could ever remember, so I, I would be rereading a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's plenty of food for thought. I've, it would definitely keep you thinking. And your time on the island. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Sanyi, for for coming on the show and sharing your experience um, quite candidly, which is is really nice to hear about what it's been like um, writing and publishing uh, for you in this industry. It's been really great chatting. Oh, no worries. Thank you for having me on. And for anyone uh, listening, if you want to keep up with what Sunyi is doing, you can follow her on Instagram at Sunyi Dean, on Twitter at Blind Nick Terrace, or on her website at www.sunyidean.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Right and Wrong UK or on Instagram and TikTok at Right and Wrong Podcast. And for more bookish writing chat, I have just started a brand new podcast, The Chosen Ones and Other Tropes, where I ask YA authors Naomi Gibson and Melissa Welliver all about the best and worst tropes in writing. So go check that out. Thanks again, Sunyi, and thanks to everyone for listening. We'll catch you in the next episode. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. 
and all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.